Well, it is a, uh, a joy and a privilege to be uh, with you uh, this morning. And as uh, most of you know, I'm coming back to Hope Bible Church. Uh, and for me, this is like a homecoming or a class uh, reunion. I'm like one of the old alumni uh, who's invited to come back to see what's been going on since I've left. So uh, uh, very happy to be here uh, this morning. And uh, even though I didn't receive a diploma or a yearbook from Hope Bible Church, this is still my alma mater. So uh, uh, very grateful to, to be back. And uh, I can truly say that um, I thank God in all my remembrance of you and always offering prayer with joy in my every uh, prayer for you. Uh, we regularly uh, pray for Hope Bible Church at uh, Baltimore uh, Bible. So uh, we're standing with you in, in prayer and in fellowship and in partnership in the gospel of uh, Jesus Christ from the very beginning uh, of our church. And uh, you already know what uh, a deep affection and love I have for your pastor, uh, Tom Leak. Uh, the opportunities that he gave me early on in ministry literally redirected my life. And uh, the most important lessons I've learned in ministry, I've learned from uh, Pastor Leek. Uh, he's been a consistent uh, model of dedication uh, to the Lord, uh, prayer in the word, uh, love for God, love for God's people, uh, personal humility, faith in God. And uh, we're constantly uh, praying for your pastor during this trial in his life. Uh, we love Tom, Sue, and all of the Leek uh, children, and uh, we join with you in, in prayer, absolutely. I read this uh, true story a number of years ago, and I, I wanted to share it with you uh, as an introduction for our message, message this morning. Don Saunders and Buddy Stride planned to be gone only a few minutes. Like most Friday nights, February 20th was family time at the little stone house where the two Baptist ministers and inseparable best friends live with their wives and Stride's four children. On that drizzly night, it meant running out for chocolate donuts and a videotape or two, then sprawling in front of the TV with the kids. After making sure Stride's two-year-old son was snug in his car seat, the men got into his 1988 Daihatsu and headed down Dallas Road toward the local grocery store. Legally, Louis Serrani Jr. shouldn't have been near an ignition key. His license was revoked in 1982 after the state labeled him a habitual offender, but Seriani kept driving. He forged an insurance card and racked up so many moving violations that his record runs 18 pages, authorities said. He wasn't due to get his license back until August 31st, 2019. On February 20th, 1998, Seriani was driving again this time doing an estimated 60 to 70 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone with his headlights off and a blood alcohol level more than twice the legal limit. Witnesses told the police that the big olds he was driving crested a hill, slammed broadside into a small white car, turning left from Dallas Road. Donald Saunders and Harold Stride, born 18 days apart in June 1971, were pronounced dead at Abington Memorial Hospital within an hour of each other. The two men grew close as 16-year-old high school juniors. Both loved God, found a bond in their unwavering faith. When Buddy said about finding a congregation he might lead, he made it clear that he came with a partner. Their dream was always to preach together and someday to train ministers in France. On the day they were killed, they had received word that they were to be formally installed at Bethany Baptist Church in Fox Chase, Philadelphia, as pastor and assistant pastor. Stride's little two-year-old boy in the car was fine, according to the report. Buddy died holding Don in his arms. 
when the fireman arrived, he told his little boy, you go with the men. I'm going to go see Jesus. And that was the end. At the crash scene, Sariani told the police he'd only had a couple of beers. His blood alcohol test at Abington Memorial registered 0.22, the equivalent of downing some 10 drinks in an hour. Two weeks later, he pleaded guilt, not guilty to 21 charges, including drunken driving, driving with the revoked license, and two counts of vehicular homicide. And what makes this story so devastating to me personally were these were two men who had just graduated from the Master Seminary both full of potential for many years of, of ministry together. And the first thing that I thought of when I heard Dr. MacArthur share that story is what a waste. What a, what a waste. You know, there's, there's some preachers or pastors that you could secretly wish in your heart that the Lord might take a little earlier. But not, not guys like this, right? I mean, why would the Lord take these men? And all you can say is that you know that God is good. You know that God is wise, but sometimes you just scratch your head and you wonder, like, why? Why, Lord? I don't, I don't get this. Just yesterday, I, I officiated a, a homegoing service for one of the members of our church, a man by the name of Keith Flynn, only 45 years old at his death. He had several heart surgeries, procedures in his 45 years of life. And his last surgery was a heart transplant in December he did not survive due to complications. Uh, he just recently became a member of our church. And even though I only knew him for a, a brief period of, of time, uh, there were a couple things that were very evident about his life. Uh, he had an undeniable love for his wife, Susie. He always spoke tenderly about his wife with a great love and affection. There was a sweet tenderness in just the way that they interacted with one another. At the, the slideshow was, was shown during the, the homegoing service. You know, every picture they were holding hands or hugging one another or kissing one another. Uh, Keith also had a desire to serve others, even in his short time with us. Uh, he told us about just his desires to serve the body. Actually took a, a great initiative in uh, helping our, our church uh, try to figure out uh, some plans for serving some of our, our members there. Uh, he was also a man of faith, and even though he experienced a great deal of personal hardships in his own life, he never complained about it. He never let go of his faith. He was like Job. He held fast to his integrity. And finally, uh, Keith had a very tender and pure heart. I remember uh, during his uh, membership interview, just coming to tears as he was talking about, you know, his uh, desire to, to grow in the Lord and uh, some of the struggles that he had been through. And I uh, was just so happy and eager to be a part of our, our membership at uh, Baltimore Bible Church. And the Lord uh, took him to be home with him uh, just last month. And it can be a, a real struggle to understand why the Lord would choose to take people like this. Why would God call someone home who was so exemplary in his love for his wife, sacrificial in his service, persevering in his faith, eager in his heart to, to learn, to, to grow? It, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. Why do righteous people suffer when there are so many who don't acknowledge God, who seem to live the length of their days without the same troubles that we do? Like a, like a, like a pastor who has debilitating health issues. Like, like why, why does that happen? It's an honest question. And thankfully, it's a question that the Bible addresses for us in, in many places in Scripture. And Psalm 73 is one of those central passages. So if uh, you want to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 73, just to give you a little bit of uh, background for this psalm, uh, the author of Psalm 73 is a man by the name of Asaph. Uh, if you were to look at the heading of this psalm in your Bible, you would 
see the words, a psalm of, of Asaph in many of your Bibles. And uh, that's actually part of the inspired text. According to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, there was a, a man by the name of Asaph who was one of the professional worship leaders in Israel, a Levitical singer, uh, somebody who was appointed as a, a chief minister before the ark of the Lord by King David himself. And uh, Asaph was the author of 12 Psalms. And 11 of those 12 Psalms are found in what's called the third book of the Psalms, uh, Psalms 73 to 89. And Psalm 73 is right at the head of that list. Now, we don't know what the specific circumstances of the Psalm were, uh, but we do know that Asaph lived long enough to know that the righteous suffer and the, the wicked seem to flourish. What did he sing? Maybe he saw something in, in David's life. Maybe he witnessed David's son Absalom trying to take the throne from his father and the pain that that caused David. Maybe he saw Shimei who mocked and ridiculed King David seemed to get away with it. Maybe Asaph just experienced his own personal suffering and he wondered, does God see this? Because this just doesn't seem to make sense. Why do I suffer and people who stand against God, opposed to God, who, who care nothing about God. Why do they seem to get away with an easy life? But whatever the circumstances were surrounding the psalm, it's, it's obvious that Asaph breathed the same air that we do. He struggled with the same kinds of, of questions that we have. And I'm going to give you uh, five words that summarize what's going on in the psalm, and we'll briefly take a look at each section. Five words, confidence, confusion, conviction, confession, and commitment. But first of all, let's uh, go to the Lord in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you this morning, and uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is sufficient. Father, your word gives us all that we need for life and godliness. My Father, we, we've come to hear you speak. And Father, I pray that as we uh, listen to your word, Lord, that we would submit our hearts and our minds to what we find in it. Father, we thank you for, for giving your revelation uh, to us. And Father, I pray that you'd use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a look at uh, the first point. The first point is confidence, okay? Confidence. Look at verse one again. It says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And the very first thing that Asaph wants to provide for us is the solid foundation of the goodness of God. It's actually the idea that embraces the entire psalm. It's found in verse 1, God is good. In verse 28, at the end of the psalm, God is my good. There's no getting around the, the goodness of, of God as an established fact. And this confidence is further emphasized by the use of the word surely at the beginning of the psalm, which could be translated truly or without a doubt, I know that God is good. And there's a clear recipient in this text of the goodness of God. It was Israel, that the nation picked out, chosen by God to enter into a covenant relationship with him. And we know from our study of books like First Peter that all who believe in Jesus Christ today have also been picked out and chosen by God to enter into a covenant relationship with him, right? In First Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, it says that those who believe are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. We've entered into a covenant with Jesus Christ and with God the Father. And through the Spirit, we've been born into this kind of privilege. More accurately, we've been born again into this privilege. You know, we could call it Christ's privilege, right? First Peter 1.3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. 
And just like Israel could be referred to as the children of God or the generation of your children, later on in verse 15 of this psalm, all of us who believe can also be called the children of God. So God is good to his children. God is good to Israel and has promised good to us as his people today. And specifically, Psalm 73 says that God is good to the pure in heart. And what does that mean to be pure in heart? The Bible's clear that the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Proverbs 20 and verse 9 says, Who can say I have cleansed my heart, that I am pure from my sin? So there's no cleansing agent that can scrub the heart clean from sin, defilement. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? But through faith, Scripture also lets us know that our hearts can be cleansed by faith. In Acts chapter 15 and verse 9, Peter recognized that God made no distinction between us and them, between the Jews and the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. The Gentiles were cleansed by faith. So the the cleansing of the heart is not a work that we can do on our own. We're cleansed by faith through the Spirit of God. It's not by our own self-efforts. And any obedience that we offer to God is a result of our hearts being cleansed. Later on in the Psalms, Asaph attempted to keep his heart pure, to wash his hands in innocence, but he still had to confess that his heart was embittered, became pierced within, was senseless and ignorant like a beast before God in verses 21 to 22. So we can't cleanse our own hearts. We need God to do that work in us, for us. And if we cry out to God for salvation, that's the work that God does in our hearts, a a work that no priest or ritual or ceremony can do for you. God has to cleanse your heart. And that happens through faith. Romans 4, 5, it says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And in Ephesians 2, 8, it says, For by grace you've been saved. You've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So that's where, where purity of heart comes from. It comes from a belief and a trust in God. And it's through faith that we're made children of God, and God promises good to us. And if you're a child of God, he's promised good to you. But the goodness of God can be very confusing because we don't always experience in life what we consider to be good. And that leads us to our second word, which is the word confusion. Verses 2 down to to 14 introduces us to this dilemma. It says, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue parades throughout the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Asaph says, my my steps almost slipped as I started to consider the experience that I was having that didn't match my expectation. That, that, uh, That term that my steps had almost slipped could literally be translated, my, my steps were almost poured out, like, like water is poured out. It's like every time Asaph tried to get a, 
a firm foothold. The ground underneath his feet was like water. It's like, I, I just can't, I can't find any place to stand. His foundation is being washed away, which is often how we can feel during times of grief, of pain. When we see things that just don't make sense to us, it's like there's no bottom to it. Asaph says, I came close to being washed away. I almost, I almost slipped, never to recover. And what would it look like for Asaph to slip away? In this context, it would have looked like denying the very thing that he had just mentioned in verse 1. Verse 1, he says, the God is good. What would it look like for Asaph to slip? It would be to turn around and say, you know what? God is not good. God is not good to those who are pure in heart. It would be to say that, that it's not worth serving God. Verse 13, surely in vain for nothing. All this is for nothing. I've kept my heart pure for what purpose? Wash my hands in innocence for what? It's not worth it. And Asaph came close to stumbling. He almost slipped away. But what would have melted his confidence away in God? Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And there it is. His, his expectation did not match his experience. Because God being good to good people, that makes sense. But God being good to wicked people, that, that doesn't compute. Or even God withholding good from good people? Why does it seem like the, the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? And particularly the, the arrogant people of the earth. Proverbs 6 tells us clearly that there are many things that God hates. Proverbs 6, 16 says there are six things that which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. And leading the list in verse 17 is haughty eyes or a proud look. God says, I hate that. I hate haughty eyes and a proud look. But look at what we find in Psalm 73. Look at verse 3. Calls them arrogant, boasters. Verse 6, it says, pride is their necklace. They, they flaunt it. They flaunt it. Verse 8, it says, they mock and speak from on high. Verse, verse 9, they, they, they go a step further. They set their mouths against heaven. So even God and his, his dwelling place are are not out of reach for these people. It's not off limits. Verse 11, they say, how does God know? There's, is there knowledge with the Most High? I mean, are, are you kidding me? You know, here, here you have people at the height of arrogance who even dare to mock God. Like God doesn't know, God doesn't exist. Proverbs six seventeen says, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. In Psalm 73, verse 6, it says, these people are known by a garment of violence. It's what covers them. It's like their fashion statement. It's in style. Proverbs 6, 18 says, God hates a heart that devises wicked plans. And in verse 6, it says that their imaginations, the imaginations of their heart have run riot. They devise wicked plans. I mean, you, you get the point. You know, the very things that God says that I hate in Proverbs 6 are the same actions that these people are engaged in. And they seem to get away with it. And there's nothing that you would have expected but like a swift judgment for these people. But instead, they're, they're living the good life. Verse 3, they're enjoying prosperity. Verse 4, their, their body is fat, which is a, a sign of prosperity. I have an abundance. My body is fat. Their eye bulges from fatness in verse 7. Verse 5 says they're not in trouble as other men. The word for, for men there is the... Uh, the, the Hebrew word anosh uh, from a word that means uh, human frailty or weakness. It's like these people don't get weak. They, they, they seem to have like this kind of supernatural strength. 
They're not plagued like mankind. It used the, uh, the word uh, Adam from the, that refers to the sons of, of Adam. It's like these, these people have escaped the curse. They're not plagued like the rest of humanity, the sons of Adam. And the summary of their lives is found in verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They've increased in wealth, you know, health and wealth for the wicked and pain and poverty for the righteous. You know, what is up with that? And the confusion that Asaph wrestled with in verse 10, verse 10 could be understood as saying, you know, God's people turn aside to the paths of, of wickedness because they're, they're drinking up the words of the wicked. They're, they're taking it in. It seems like it makes sense, like they're, they're getting away with it. Just doesn't seem right. People who are far from God live long and healthy lives, and people who are chosen by God and pure in heart face so much trouble. Seems like the wicked are rewarded. But what about me, God? Verse 14 says, I've been stricken all day long, chastened every morning. That's, that's the kind of thinking that Asaph had. Like, like Lord, am I being punished because I'm doing the right thing? <laughs> he almost believed it, but never finally gave into it. And this is where our third word comes in. It's the word conviction. Look at verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I'm going to start talking like this. Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept by, away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When Asaph began to, to think in this way, he started to become troubled by his own thoughts. Like, like Lord, like what am I thinking here? To think that the, the, the wicked are, are okay, they're, they're, that this is the, the life that I want to try to emulate, that I want to follow after them, that I'm being swept away by this. He said, if I started talking like this, I, I would have betrayed a generation of your, your children. He was convicted about the, the thoughts that he had, and he, he was convinced that if I, if I start to verbalize these things, that, that I could actually destroy the faith of other people. Some people think that speaking your mind is always a, a good thing, right? You know, we should be honest with the Lord. We should be honest with mature people. But Asaph here says, if I spoke all that was on my mind, I could potentially lead others astray. You know, some people give you a piece of their mind that they should have kept to themselves, right? <laughs> it would have been a betrayal of the children of God, he says. And if you remember, Asaph was a worship leader. People would have been looking to him for direction. And if Asaph began telling people that, you know what? Serving the Lord isn't worth it. It's, it's all empty vanity. It's meaningless. Why are we even doing this? doesn't make sense. If, if he started speaking like this, he would have betrayed the people of God. That's what, one of the reasons why James 3.1 says that, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that you shall incur a stricter judgment. I mean, you can lead other people astray by what you say. And Asaph began to realize that his doubts had dangerous consequences. It could be used to damage the faith of, of others. You know, as he's kind of sinking down into this, this deep hole, he could have started pulling other people down with him. And he's starting to become aware of his surroundings at this point. He's be being convicted. But then what firmly placed solid ground beneath his feet was entering into the sanctuary of God. And this is really the turning point in this psalm. Verse 17, it says that he continued to be troubled until, until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their end. 
that there was something about gathering together in the place of worship with God's people that was clarifying. When he was alone with his thoughts, things were confusing. But then when he gathered together with the people of God and worship, things started to become clear. It's like, like now I can see it. Like now I'm perceiving things. When I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. The, the end is literally the after part. That's what it, what it means, the after part. What's the final outcome of the unbeliever? He became convinced that, that what he saw wasn't all that really was. You understand that? That there was more than what he was looking at. Because those who, who truly believe that it's not worth it to serve God, in the end, the after part, they're brought down in destruction. In verse 18, it says, Surely you set them in slippery places. You know, I thought I was the one who was slipping, right? My feet were like water underneath me. But he says, No, Lord, they're the ones who don't have a footing. They're the ones who don't have a foundation. You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they're destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. He says, that is what is true. And when Asaph entered into the sanctuary, he was reminded about what was true and it cleared up all the confusion. Don't underestimate the importance of gathering together with the people of God in worship, okay? Don't underestimate the importance of that. When you become filled with doubts, with grief, there is something about gathering together with the people of God to focus your attention on him. And what would Asaph focus on when he gathered together with the people of God? Remember, he was a Levitical singer. What would he have led them in singing? And singing what? The scriptures, the very Psalms that we're, we're reading. Like these are the things that he's leading other people in to focus attention on God and his word. Asaph's responsibility would have been to lead in the singing of Scripture, and, and this is what he said brought reality back into focus for him. Being convicted by the Scriptures, which leads us to his confession. Look at verse 21. He says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. He, he acknowledges that his bitterness led him to some foolish thinking. He says, I, I was embittered. I was pierced within. I was in pain. But, but it was then that I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was, I was like a beast. A, a, a beast, an animal, doesn't contemplate the future, okay? Both 2 Peter 2 and the book of Jude calls beasts unreasoning animals and creatures of instinct. And as smart as you might think that Fluffy and Fifi are, believe me, they're not connecting all the dots, okay? <laughs> they're, they're not getting the big picture. And that's where Asaph was. He was only looking at what was in front of him. He wasn't looking at the, the big picture. When he was thinking within himself that it's not worth it, he said, he said I was like an animal that was you know, kind of only seeing the food dish that was right in front of me. Like, like, this is what I want. This is what I'm after. Yang, 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 yang. Like, like, he didn't see the bigger picture. There, there's more going on here. And now he confesses that this kind of thinking is sin before the Lord. Lord, what was I doing? Lord, what was I thinking? It is so wrong. Confession is agreeing with God that what God says is right. Okay? That's what confession is. 
And Asaph is finally at the point where he's starting to think God's thoughts after him. And he begins to see the goodness of God and he connects himself back to God. Verse 23 says, Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. Afterward, receive me to glory. The presence of of God provided Asaph with comfort. God gave him reassurance and, and held him by the hand. He's gripped by God. He's also guided by God. Instead of leaning on his own understanding, he's leaning on on God for understanding. God, I'm guided by you. I want to be guided by you. And God provided Asaph with eternal hope because his future is promised and secured as the glory of God. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. The afterward of the wicked is destruction. That's their future, the afterward, right? But the afterward of the believer is glory. That's the after part. And he uses the the same term we used before in verse 17. You know, the afterward of the, the wicked, the end is destruction. He uses the same term here. The afterward for me is glory. And it's clear that Asaph is talking about a glory beyond this life because the very next verse says, whom have I in where? Heaven, but you. To be received by God into glory is the same kind of language that was used for Enoch back in Genesis 5, 24, who was taken up into glory. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him or received him. Same language used in uh, Psalm 49, verse 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol or the grave and he will receive me. He's taking me home. He's taking me into glory. And that's taking in the, the bigger picture. And if I don't keep that picture in mind, I can become embittered, pierced within, fall into the temptation of betraying the people of God, speaking ignorantly against God, giving up because it just doesn't seem worth it anymore. God had to snap Asaph back into reality to perceive things rightly. And having confessed his sins, Asaph was ready to commit himself fully to God. Which brings us to our last and final word, which is the word commitment. Commitment. Look at verses 25 to 28. These are powerful, hopeful, and faith-building words. Listen to this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. First of all, in uh, verses 25 to 26, he recognizes that, it, that, that he had a, a God, that if he had a God who would receive him into glory, that he had all the reward that he would ever need. He's finally turning his attention back to the, the goodness and the glory of God, which is what heaven is all about anyway, right? It's all about him. What, what, is, what is heaven about if it's not about God, right? So he recognizes that God is the goal of heaven. And guess what? That's who I have. That's who I have. I have God. But not only is God the goal of heaven, he's also our desire while we're here on earth. And I've often read this passage and I thought that when he says that besides you, I desire nothing on earth, that when he says that, that what he meant to say is, you know, that apart from you or in addition to you, I don't desire anything on earth. And that's, that's a, that's a great thought to have that, you know, apart from you or beside you, in addition to you, that, that I don't desire anything on the earth. 
But that's actually not what Asaph is saying here. What he's actually saying here is that when I am besides you, when I am with you, when I am in your presence, I desire nothing on earth. You might actually find a note in your Bible that shows that that word besides means with. It's speaking about in your presence. When I am with you, when I am beside you, when I am in your presence, I desire nothing on earth. It's speaking about the presence of of God. And what Asaph is saying is that God, when I draw near to you, when I am in your presence, everything else fades into insignificance. That's what he's saying. There's this old song that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's what Asaph is saying. That that Lord, when I am with you, when I am in your presence, everything else fades away. Everything else dissipates. Asaph just spoke about entering into the sanctuary of his God, drawing near to him in worship, being gripped by his hand, guided by his counsel, promised a reception into glory. And he says, God, when I draw near to you, when when I'm consumed by thoughts about you, everything else just fades away. Nothing matters anymore. I'm not worried about the prosperity of the wicked. When I'm in your presence, when I'm thinking about you, when I'm caught up into glory, I'm not worried about the health of their bodies or how they die. What does it matter anymore? Who's inaugurated, right? (laughs) Even if my flesh and my heart fail God, which is a reference here to the end of life, that word fail means being brought to a complete end, to be finished, to be spent. It's not just to be inadequate, but to be brought to a complete end, that even if that happens, even if I'm brought to the complete end of life, that you're still the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And this would have been particularly meaningful to Asaph because like I mentioned earlier, Asaph is one of the Levitical singers. And if you remember, The children of of Israel, as they entered into the promised land, the land was divided up between the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And everybody, every tribe, got a piece of the land except one tribe. Guess which one tribe that was? The Levites. The Levites didn't have a portion in the, the land. They didn't have a possession, the physical possession in the land. And why was that? Listen to this, Deuteronomy 10, verses 8 and 9. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to serve him, and to bless his name until this day. Therefore, Levi does not have a portion or an inheritance with his brothers. Why is that? Because the Lord is his inheritance. Just as the Lord your God spoke to him. Numbers 18 verse 20 says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. The Levites were to be a representation in Israel that God was enough. (laughs) That even if I don't have the physical possessions down here, guess what I have? I have have God, and that's, that's enough. Asaph was to be reminded of this truth, that you are enough, God. You are my portion forever. He recognized that God was all the reward that he would ever need, and that even if his body failed him, that God never would fail him. And secondly, he recognized that God was the greatest good that he would ever receive. Verse 28, 
He says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge. The greatest good that could be received in this life is not a long and healthy life, but it's the nearness and presence of God. That's the greatest good that you can receive in this life. It's not seeking shelter in positions of power, of influence, but in the refuge of your God. The word refuge is used in scripture to speak about a place of of safety. When a person was pursued by an enemy, they would often seek a a place of, of refuge. In the law, God set up cities of refuge where people could flee from individuals who sought after their lives. And in God, we can find our place of refuge. Our place of safety is in him. And that doesn't just last for this life, that lasts for the after part, (laughs) after this life. That's the only place that I can find safety. Verse 27 says, for behold, and this is the contrast here, behold, those who are far from you, they'll perish. You've destroyed those who are unfaithful to you. But in contrast to that, I've got a place of safety. I'm not destroyed like the rest of the unbelievers. I've got a place of of safety and I've got a portion that lasts forever. And that's something to talk about, isn't it? That's something to talk about, which is how this psalm ends. Look Look at verse 28. The end of the verse says, I have made the Lord God my refuge. Why? That I may tell of all your works. This is something to talk about. Earlier on, Asaph came close to betraying the people of God by saying that, you know what? I don't know if God is good. I'm not sure that he's trustworthy. I'm not sure that it makes sense to to follow him. You know, what are we cleaning our hands and innocence for? You know, it seems like the people who do what's wrong, they get away with it. What what, what are we, what are we disciplining ourselves for? He, He almost came close to saying that. But now that he's been convinced and now he's committed to the goodness of God, now he's got something to talk about. Okay. He's got something to talk about now. I can talk about the works of God. I may tell of your works. And what do you think this psalm is all about? (laughs) It's all about declaring the goodness of God, which is actually how the psalm began. Brings us right back to verse one. Surely God is good to Israel. That's the beginning and that's the conclusion. God is good. And the entire psalm is an application of that last verse. Asaph is telling us about the works of God. His confusion was stopped by a conviction of his sin, which led to a confession of his sin, which was followed by a commitment to God, which brought about the confidence that God is good. And that's why we have the psalm in the first place, to remind us that God is good. And we can rest confidently in that firm foundation. You have a firm foundation this morning. You have a firm foundation. Now, my question is, is are, are you resting confidently in that firm foundation, the firm foundation of God and his word? Have you trusted in him alone for salvation? Have you recognized that if you have God, that you have all the reward that you will ever need? That's what Asaph did. He realized that even if his, his flesh and his heart failed him, if, even if he came to the end of life, that I have a portion that's reserved for me forever. God is the eternal reward of all those who've placed their trust in him. Number two, have you recognized that God is the greatest good that you could ever receive? <laughs> you can't seek shelter in your positions of power, your physical life, but you can seek that place of safety in the refuge of God. 
we can find refuge, safety, protection, and that's not just for this life, it's for the after part. And do you understand that outside of God that there's no place of refuge at all? The wicked are destroyed, those who are unfaithful to God. And there's a goodness that's only reserved for those who are pure in heart. Like I said, you can't purify your heart through your self-efforts. You have to come to God to have your heart purified, to have your heart cleansed by faith. And in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11, it says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And it goes on to say, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. We, we have a place of refuge, we have a place of safety, and that place is only found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, I would urge you to come to him. That's, that's the only place that you're going to find eternal good. The only place that you're going to find eternal good. Everything that you have right now in life, and maybe right now you think that everything's full and happy and prosperous, but all of those things will be stripped away in the after part. There's coming an after part. There's an afterword, okay? There's a sequel to this story. And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, you will face destruction. But if you come to him, if you trust in him, the one who came, the one who lived a, a perfect and sinless life, who always pleased the Father, the one who died as a substitute on the cross, bearing upon himself the wrath, the eternal weight of wrath of God for our sins, and who rose again, proving that he had defeated death and that he had completely satisfied the Father's requirements. That if you place your trust in, in him, you'll find good. You'll find purity of heart. You'll find an eternal home. You'll find a portion in Christ. And I urge you to come to Jesus Christ today, to trust in him for your eternal life. And if you do, you'll never be disappointed. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, so much for uh, this opportunity that we've had uh, to look to you, uh, to look to your word. Uh, Father, we're, we're grateful that you give us everything that we need and that in you we have our portion. Father, what, what do I desire besides you? When I'm drawn near to you, when I'm with you, when I'm in your presence, when, when I'm focused on you, your word, your goodness, your glory. Father, the, the things of, of life just just fade into insignificance. What does it matter anymore? So Father, I pray that you'd help us to direct our attention to you. Father, that we would find strength in the worship with the people of God, gathering together with your people to sing your praises, to focus our attention on your glory, God. My Father, I pray that in these, these times, Lord, that you would bring clarity and that you would wash away the confusion and give us a solid place to stand. Father, we're thankful that you've given us a firm foundation. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen.